from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Well, good day, everybody, and welcome to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. We are pleased to be joined by our special guest. All of our guests are special, but this one is particularly special. A good friend, Professor Tim Simpson. Tim Simpson is the Paul Morrow Professor of Engineering Design and Manufacturing. He's the co-founder of the world's first additive manufacturing design graduate program. And he's the co-director of the Center for Innovative Materials Processing through Direct Digital Deposition, the SIMP3D here at Penn State. He specializes in new product development design specifically for additive manufacturing, and he has helped educate and train nearly a thousand industry practitioners to use metal additive manufacturing, while also advising more than a dozen startups in the industry. He contributes a monthly column to Additive Insights, to Modern Machine Shop, and he is an educational advisor for the Barnes Group Advisors, a team of experts helping industrialize the world of added manufacturing. Tim has appointments in engineering in a couple of departments, as well as in architectural engineering. And he used to be, until recently, the interim head of SEDTAP here at Penn State. And Tim and I know each other through the MASP program, which is Manufacturing and Sterilization Against COVID, an initiative that he started in his basement by himself with a couple of buddies that eventually expanded into a team of almost uh, 400 plus faculty members and staff here at Penn State uh, responding to the COVID-19 crisis in a variety of interesting ways. So please join me in welcoming Tim to today's podcast. Hey, Tim. Hey, good to be here. Thank you, Steve. How are you, How are you my friend? Doing well. Your comments on masks take me back to the start of a pandemic and cranking in the basement there wondering what was happening to the world and everything else. Good. We had a good Good team and a good time, despite everything that was going on. Good to be here. Thank you. So, Tim, for our audience, before we get into the uh, details of additive manufacturing, why don't you give everybody a little bit of background on yourself, how you ended up at Penn State, and more importantly, how you ended up in additive manufacturing space as your area of expertise? Sure. Yeah, I've actually been at been at Penn State going on, uh, I think this is year 24 now. My background is mechanical engineering, so I've been doing product design development for years. A lot interested in new product development, customization, modularity. How do we create new products based on platforms? And there, interestingly, the as you know, the a lot of those decisions and trade-offs are based or rooted in the economies of scale of traditional manufacturing processes. And so as this additive thing started picking up again, was fortunate to meet and connect with some folks here, realize, holy cow, we can now 3D print metal. That was sort of mind-blowing. And then it was like, whoa, if we can do that, the economics are changing. And so now all of the sort of design decisions and trade-offs we've been used to potentially are, you know, have to be completely rethought. So I, I sort of started dabbling into this metal 3D printing thing, which we now refer to as additive manufacturing. And as they say, I did not know how, how deep the rabbit hole would go. Here we are. And... 10 years later, right, as a center that we've been extremely fortunate with a very large group of of faculty across engineering, materials, healthcare, you know, faculty up in business and supply chain, uh, legal. I mean, it's been it's been a phenomenal roller coaster, if you will, finding 
like-minded individuals that have really helped advance and I think collectively position Penn State as, as one of the go-to places for additive because of the depth we have in metals, but really the breadth as well in, in polymers and concrete and bioprinting and the application to so many different industries. So it uh, makes it fun to come to work every day, I'll tell you what. So Tim, we, we throw around these terms, additive manufacturing and 3D printing. And for a person who's maybe not familiar with, and I, I don't, I'm sure you're not going to get into some of the technicalities, or maybe you will, but talk about additive uh, manufacturing and, and 3D printing. Are, are they one and the same thing, or are there differences? And then how does that technology compare to, to the traditional subtractive manufacturing? Yeah, no, great point. I, I think they are... They are one and the same. They're intended. I think additive manufacturing is sort of a, a rebranding, if you will, 12, 14 years ago, where we're trying to 3D printing technology has been around, you know, late 80s, early 90s. It, it first came to market. We were doing layer-wise deposition of, of plastic, right? I mean, that's that's really this additive. We're adding layers, sort of like if we were printing one layer after another or another. Initially, that was with polymers. About 15 or so years ago, we figured out how to do that with, with metals as well. And now, as we move into that, we can make end-use parts and components that really, as, as that was going on, people, 3D printing became so associated with sort of rapid prototyping that we had to sort of rename, rebrand it. And so ASTM and ISO, the two uh, standard bodies, sort of redefined additive as, you know, layer-wise manufacturing method where we're depositing material, fusing, melting that together to make parts out of different materials, alloys, and whatnot. We're also doing that. Uh, the other thing additive recognizes that, it, that it's a digital model. So it is a, you know, we're not using blueprints and drawings anymore. We need a CAD file to generate uh, the tool paths for our 3D printers. Uh, and as they say, we've been off to the races ever since. And so the second half of your question, really, how does it how does it change or vary from subtractive or, or forming, right? With subtractive, you block a material and you remove it away to get the shape you want. Forming, like casting, uh, injection molding, right? You've got some sort of tool or a mold in which you are, you know, putting metal, pouring metal into or injecting plastic into to create the form. With additive, uh, you're literally one layer at a time adding material or depositing material and solidifying it. There's there's actually several different ways of, of doing it. I think that's part of the confusion around additive. It's like there's not, it's there is no one size fits all. There's seven different types and hundreds of different varieties depending on what you're trying to do. It, it's a hot topic these days. Everybody's talking about it. And full disclosure, Tim and I are working actually on, I think, more than one research project together in this space because, as he mentioned, there's an overlap between the different colleges and the interests of the people that we work with. Why is it Why is it so hot? You, you mentioned that this technology, the concept came into fruition back in the late 80s, and people can't see us on camera here, but we were actually younger at that time. What what's different now, and why is it why is it being discovered by the business world as such an exciting opportunity? Yeah, no, I think I think we're sort of in the uh, in sort of the second wave, if you will, of of excitement around additive. That first one came again late '80s, early '90s. 3D systems was the brought the first technology to market successfully. Stratasys quickly followed. We're doing polymer 
you know, plastic 3D printing and it and it really and it really solved sort of the the prototyping problem, right? Designers at the time, how can we easily quickly show the 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 form, right? How how does this fit, you know, and et cetera. And so 3D printing quickly took off as uh, as a result of that. And then I think, you know, it waned a little bit as as these techno new technologies do, right? Follow the the Gartner hype cycle there, among others. I think we're now sort of in that second wave with with metals in the sense that again, go back well 13, 15 years ago, the combination of powder materials with lasers, with computing power, able to now create machines that could literally melt metal together to now form a solid metal part. And so that again triggers the new hype cycle. Expectations are off the charts. We can print and do anything. Of course, the reality is much different, but I think we're coming out of that trial of disillusionment, right? Getting up the slope. And, and there are companies now that are have figured it out. And I think it is particularly telling as uh, you know somebody in the business school and the supply chain discussions that are going on now, I think we're hit we're hitting a new plateau here where all of a sudden the business folks are interested. That says that tells me right that a lot of the you know we don't have it fully figured out yet, but a lot of the sort of technology development R and D validation testing is now at a point where it's like, hey, this is a real manufacturing process, just like these other ones. And you know if I can figure out how to make it perform cost effective and uh, get it done on time, uh, meet my requirements, then hey. Additive is is one of the choices I really need to consider. Now you've kind of alluded to it a little bit, and I don't want to drag you too too far into the rabbit hole. But how does additive manufacturing? Now you mentioned there are like seven seven different technologies, and obviously there's lots of different materials. But how does it actually work? If I'm a you know I just landed from a foreign planet, and you're trying to explain to me how does it actually work? How does it actually work? You take some material and you squish it in and you make a layer and then you do it again and then you repeat, repeat. So there's a, a couple of basic ways and it, it sort of comes down to how do you add material? How do you then melt or fuse that material together? And then how do you then do it again in the next layer? And so each process is a little different. And the one, you know, the one that we most, when people talk about 3D printing and like the desktop printers that are so pervasive certainly in our labs and maker spaces at school, but in a lot of companies, you are literally, it's, it's called material extrusion and you are literally heating up and then squeezing out, you know, a plastic kind of like you're doing toothpaste and you're going back and forth layer by layer by layer in the shape that you want. And so you start with your 3D model in CAD or whatnot. You then take that and orient it and say, oh, I want to build it in this direction or this direction. And then you slice it up uh, into many thin little layers. And then, you know, just like you create a tool path for like, like subtractive CNC, you create a tool path to say, hey, deposit material here, stop, go to the next level, do it here, go to the next layer, do it here. And so that's, uh, you know, that those systems now are, I mean, heck, you can buy them for $100, $200, right? And get up and running. I mean, it's phenomenal how, how those costs have come down comparatively right and now with companies that you know makerbot and and many others lulzbot that have sort of democratized 3d printing low cost easy access materials you know that's sort of driving a lot of a lot of that interest 
at the industry grade then level when you're doing metals two main processes there again you're doing a either a layer of powder where literally you now have a laser coming down that is melting you know that geometry so based on your cad file the computer is telling where the laser go melt here but not there you know do the next layer do the next and it's literally like welding as it melts it welds fuses together to create that three-dimensional shape and then there's other similar processes instead of the the laser melting a layer of powder flip it around and you blow the powder in or feed a wire in and that laser again comes down in and melts it solidifies it and creates the current layer and you know welds it to the previous layer and and builds it up so again what your material is, the energy to melt fuel, fuse, adhese it, and then how are you then controlling one layer after the next, right? Is, is uh, some combination thereof defines the basics of each process. And when you think, you know, you talked about how the business people are starting to get excited about it and obviously starting to probably put some money behind it. I know you and I have worked with and you've worked with more firms that actually do this. That's their whole business, right? Just printing parts for individuals. What are some of the recent innovations in the space that have made it more conducive for, for firms to use it as an option? I think it, it's all about, I, I love this quote from Bill Brindley. He was uh, Pratt & Whitney, one of our speakers. And he said, you know, we're not, we're not going to fly a 3D printed part just because it's cool. It's got to buy its way onto the engine, just like any other part, right? And so same for a car, same for your hip, et cetera. And I think over the past decade now, we've done a lot of that foundational work to say, yes, we can get a fully dense material from powder. Yes, it will have the properties, strength, stiffness that we you know, think and want it to have. Fatigue life, all these other sort of things that we're used to designing towards. So there's been a lot of work going on just to ensure that as we're making this, and, and I think that's one of the other big differences with additive versus subtractive, literally, as you are printing your part, not only are you making the geometry, but you're literally making the material at the same time because you're heating, cooling, heating, cooling, right? Versus like subtractive, I start with a big block of metal and I cut it out. Well, I know everywhere that metal, right, that has these properties and I've just created the shape additive you're doing both at once and so i think people have been leery oh is it strong enough oh is it going to fail i still get those questions today but i think i think now the companies that have invested and done the work in aero auto medical oil and gas energy gas turbines among others they've invested the time and energy they know how to control the process make it reliable make it repeatable and then they figure out how to work it to bring the cost down to make it economical. And we've seen that even in the past, material costs are high, machine costs are high, productivity, et cetera, but those are coming down. And so it was painful buying, buying some of those powders a few years ago, but prices have dropped 40, 50%. Machines are, are doubling, tripling, quadrupling in speed, which means then the costs uh, of producing those parts is coming down. And, and of course, then our design tools are getting better. And so it's much easier now to create a, a value proposition or understand how does additive add value to, to my part, to my production, to my system, which I think was a bit, a bit more challenging earlier and or a lot of risk and a lot of investment to sort of be able to see, you know, get line of sight on what, what makes a good business case. And I think that that's really shifted now 
in the past, you know, two, three, four years and uh, much easier for companies to to get and make that business case. Now, I know you've written some really cool articles that I actually did take the time to read, believe it or not, as well as given some talks about the barriers to adoption for additive manufacturing. Can you talk about some of the hurdles that additive has to jump to become right for an organization or for a part or for wherever you want to apply it? Absolutely. Yeah, there have been a lot. And I think, again, a lot of those we've figured out how to get over. I mean, for a long time, there, there weren't enough standards out there for additive materials, processes, testing, et cetera, et cetera. Those, one good thing during the pandemic, everybody was stuck at home. So we got, we got tons of standards approved. I think there was, there's been at least 50, if not more over the past three years, right? So all of a sudden now you, you've got a standard. Folks like NASA have released standards on how to use additive for spaceflight hardware. I mean, we didn't have those things 10 years ago. So now we've got accepted practices. DOD's doing that. Companies have been developing stuff as well, right? So now you have practices and SOPs to implement this. I think people have been trained and getting experience. So now they know how to use and operate. And they're starting to say, trust, trust the process, right? Trust the outcome. Because a lot of this, ooh, new technology, that means more risk for companies, right? And so that added risk, I need to, how much time and energy do I need to invest to overcome and essentially de-risk this process to it? So that that investment has been going on and, and starting to pay back as well. I think, unfortunately, as a design guy, one of the big bottlenecks is still the, the tool chain. So my CAD models, generating geometries, doing the analysis, understanding process simulation, predicting microstructure properties, this called this digital workflow, right? Of all these different digital tools that we have to pull together to then design, analyze, predict, prepare, print, inspect, right? So this whole notion of of the digital twin, the digital thread, I mean, that's, we've been using that language in additive for a while because it is truly a digital process from your CAD file all the way to the print. And so the time, energy, headache of getting my tools to communicate, the handoffs, how do I ensure, reduce errors, reduce risk? I mean, all those usual sorts of things that we've spent hundreds, thousands of years in the case of casting, figuring out the processes, hundreds of years for subtractive, right? I mean, additive is really, it's the new kid on the block. I mean, it's barely, uh, barely out of its teenage years here, if you will, 30-ish, 30-ish years, maybe young adult, still got a lot a lot of time and uh, things to learn and do and grow. So we're getting there. I think we understand the challenges a lot better now than we did. And now we're honing in on, okay, sensing for quality assurance. Can I, how do I monitor the process to ensure my part is good, right? So I know coming off the bill, how do I understand the economics to figure out, you know, do I do it do I do additive in-house? Do I outsource it, right? I mean, some of the, the business decisions now, well, we don't have those models yet. We don't understand those economics yet. So there is no good supply chain model, as you and I have discussed many times, to help help companies figure this out. Okay, do I go to a service bureau? Oh, do I, do I go to an all-in-one service bureau that does everything? Or do I print here, go there, bring it back? I mean, those sort of business decisions are... There are no good models, good general frameworks or anything out there for doing any of that right now. And, you know, I know you're a design guy. That's your background. And you've told me probably 10,000 times, I might be overestimating there, that 
design for additive is not the same as design for traditional. So I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I got this part. I'll just give it to the additive guys and they're just going to make a duplicate, right? But it doesn't work that way, does it? Not at all. How do you design for additive differently than you design for a traditional manufacturer? Great question. And I think, yeah, probably that's the biggest, the biggest headache, biggest hurdle misconception is that I can just go and take any part that I'm currently making, turn around and make it with additive and it'll be cheaper and better somehow. It's not. Every part that we're currently making has been designed for machining, for casting, for forging, where we have to adhere to the rules and guidelines to ensure that we get a good part that also at the same time minimize the cost of using that process to make that part. The drivers of the cost drivers of an additive process are in many ways different from a subtractive process, for example, because if you think about just fundamentally, right, if I'm doing subtractive, the more holes I'm drilling, the more material I'm removing, that costs more time because it takes more machine time. And of course, I'm generating more scrap. And so if I'm designing a subtractive part, I want to minimize the amount of work I have to do, the amount of machine, you know, material I got to remove, the amount of holes I got to drill, whatever. Additive, it's the complete opposite. Additive is about the more material I add, the more machine time, the more cost, the material cost, the more machine cost. And so one is starting from the hole and trying to minimize how little I remove. The other is how do I minimize how much I add to get to where I need, right? So you are diametrically opposed in those two processes alone. And so to think that a part that has been designed and optimized for subtractive processes, can I turn around and make that? No, you're not, because the material costs for additive powders, among other things, are, are more expensive than traditional bar stock, plate, you know, sort of materials. So your material costs are going to be higher. And especially if you're not allowed to change the design, why would I 3D print a big giant block of material? It doesn't. It doesn't make sense, but if I want an exact duplicate, right, I need to be able to do that to have an apples to apples comparison. So a lot of people, you know, look at their bill of materials, look through their inventory, pick five parts based on some criteria, turn around and go print them. And then, yeah, they, they can replicate it. Yeah, it looks the same. It performs the same. But then you go, why the hell did it cost five to ten times more to make it with additive versus that? And then you're like, why the hell would I ever use additive? So trying to use additive to recreate, you know, to manufacture current parts, you're not solving a problem, right? You're just, you're, you're, the duplication there is, is not, it's not helping. If, if manufacturing works, I just, and I wrote a blog post on this. If everything's going well, you don't need additive. If all your, if subtractive forming and everything is, is working for you and is cost effective, don't screw it up. Don't bring it out of it, right? If you have a chance and or a clean sheet or a new, you know, new part or you, you know, you can redesign, then yes, additive makes sense. And so then design for additive is how do you add value with additive, with layer-wise production, do things that you can't do geometry-wise or material-wise that you can't do with forming or subtractive processes. And then at the same time, how do you design that part for additive to minimize or save costs from the limitations that come with additive? So much like, again, you have to design for casting and machining. There are similar guidelines when I'm designing for additive. Overhangs and other things that, that I can print, 
But guess what? It's going to cost more later to remove supports, to finish, to post process, etc. You got to think about those things when you start, just like you got to think about, I can't mill a, a, a perfectly a 90 degree angle, right? If I'm making a subtractive part. So I better, I better put a nice radius or fill it in there versus others. So there are rules, there are guidelines and understanding how do you balance those two against each other, get the best bang for the buck out of additive. That's, that's where people struggle and or can easily trip and fall. Now, on the flip side, as you know, because this is some of the work we're doing together, is there are also some exciting opportunities with additive that never existed with traditional manufacturing. You want to talk about maybe some of the work that we're doing together or some of the exciting ways in which additive could be a real uh, game changer or blockbuster for companies? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually this this harkens back to, in some ways, one of the... Uh the silver linings out of the pandemic, this the supply chain disruptions that we that we saw being able to, you know, it was masks and face shields and all these other things. Oh my goodness, with additive now, I can make a locally, I can print it on demand, I can iterate quickly, right? All these things. It was like, whoa, what is this new technology that that you have, right? It was it was all of a sudden there was a manufacturing problem that additive could solve. It was supply chain disruptions and or availability of of the, you know, some of the base materials needed to make the parts. So, you know, that was sort of, you know, sort of phase one, if you will, of of this resurgence. And then I think as as you and I have talked much now, it's those supply chain issues continue to pervade the industry in all sorts of different ways, right? And so now how do you make your supply chain more agile, more flexible, more resilient with additive and your other processes? Whoa, now, you know, game changing, right? What, is, what does that mean? Now, where do I put additive? When do I want to use it? How do I, so now that you think about in concert with these other processes to address real manufacturing problems, I think that's where a lot of this renewed interest is coming. And I think that's where you know, you all up in the business school and supply chain in particular are good at understanding and modeling that, right? And yeah, I may not, you know, we were harping on picking five parts out of your, your bill of materials and then printing them, right? And being more expensive. But if I can't get that part any other way, then I, I don't care how, I don't care how expensive it is, right? Time, there, there's a cost associated with time there. So if I can get that part in a week versus a year, I'm willing to pay a little extra more. And so now being able to look at what is sort of the total value proposition around using additive in your supply chain to make it more resilient, put up with these, you know, help you as a stopgap measure, uh, dealing with uncertainties and disruptions, et cetera. I think that's that's of interest. And I think the other great thing you guys have, have gotten me thinking more about, and we've seen this in, in sort of DOD for a while, sort of legacy legacy parts and systems, right? So airplane and, and vehicles that have been, the original suppliers are long gone, right? And and you're aware of this as well in a lot of the, the maintenance and repair MRO sustainment side of things, company doesn't want to continue to make those parts and sustain that system 20 or 30 years. Well, could somebody with additive come in and extend the useful life of that of that larger component of that larger system by printing these two or three replacement parts. So when and where, and how do you do that? I think that's, 
I have not seen many, you know, anyone really talking about those sort of issues at, at, at that extent. So I think as you and I talk more uh, about sort of these uh, supply chain challenges and issues, I'm enjoying challenging the fundamental assumption saying, well, additive can and can't do this and seeing where we meet in the middle, right? So that's one of the, one of the fun things about additive. We always refer to it. It's a, it's a team sport. My expertise only goes so far. And if I'm trying to do additive on an island, forget about it. I got to work with material science. I'm an engineer, so I got to work with material scientists, right? I got to work with supply chain folks. I got to work with doctors at Hershey, right? Because now we're doing medical products for masks. You need all those perspectives. You need to collaborate. You need to work together, understand and challenge each other's assumptions. And that's where, that's where the fun stuff happens. Yeah, I think I think you're right about the you know, you mentioned the COVID thing a couple of times. I call it COVID lemonade. I say COVID handed us lemons and we made lemonade out of it. And there's a lot of situations where you wouldn't have thought about an alternative way to do it until you couldn't do it the way you've always done it. Supply chain disruption is not new, right? It's been around for millennia, but people always just muscle through it. Oh, find another supplier. Oh, call the guy or lady and yell at them and tell them where's my order, you know, shipping on time. When all of a sudden those solutions evaporate, now it's like, well, can I maybe make it here? You know, can I make it myself? Which I find fascinating because if you think back of, you know, you and I both know a little bit about the history of manufacturing. You think back to the old days, right? Henry Ford put the first continuous flow manufacturing process in, was completely vertically integrated, right? He had the coal mines, he mined the ore, he made the metal, he, he did everything from scratch. And then everybody broke everything up into parts because that was more efficient. Now they're finally like, well, more efficient isn't necessarily more resilient, is it? There's other things that would interest people too, like things like you mentioned this this resiliency as, as one as a key element. What about flexibility and sustainability, which I think are in a lot of people's minds? And I know you said there's a lot of flexibility in the way you can design and engineer parts in an additive space. And then there's a sustainability aspect to it too. Can you talk to those a little bit? Yeah, I, I think again from from sort of the design freedoms and the agility that are that are in additive, right? The different economics there, the ability to be more flexible, respond more quickly, smaller lot sizes, print on demand. You now have more levers that you can pull and to to control and or respond to changes in customer demand, interests, you know, various uncertainties that, that were challenging before. I think the other one on the sustainability piece, really, a lot of folks are starting to look at now, you know, this, this notion of a circular economy, right? Can I take, take parts that are no longer useful and grind, grind it up into metal and then get the powder to print the replacement parts, right? So sort of closed loop Reuse of that, that then, of course, is, helps with sustainment and, and material utilization, energy use, among other things. You're seeing it a lot in plastics and polymers, right? Take, take all this plastic scrap, grind it up into filament to then 3D print the next generation or, or new parts or things. And so I think we're just, we're just starting to see those opportunities and then how to start capitalizing on them using this technology. And I think to your, your earlier comment as well, if I'm now doing this in-house and or bringing it back locally, now I've got, you know, not necessarily better control, but I can, I can get, I can coordinate better who's doing what and where to then return material, scrap, reuse this, do that, and put together sort of an ecosystem that as a whole it has a much much better sense of sustainability and whatnot to it. 
Yeah, and 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 you know, one addition I'll add to that is you know because it's directly related to supply chain. A significant portion of the carbon footprint of any product that's manufacturing is is its logistics costs, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, particularly when you talk about moving it from a foreign country across the ocean or via water or by via air, uh, and then truck. You know, there's a lot of carbon that gets chewed up in that process. If you're not moving apart, you're not generating any carbon. So you can really reduce the carbon footprint if you if you make it locally. Yeah, no, I you're totally again shows how you think differently about things than than I do there and what you pick up on. I think you're spot on. And and now I think it's also those delays, they've been exacerbated because now it it's late. Therefore, oh, we better put it on a plane and fly it, which is one of the you know, a much worse carbon footprint than you know, putting it on a boat and shipping it or a train or, or whatever, right? So the the usual response to some of these disruptions is uh, runs counter to sort of uh, many of our sustainability goals. So you are spot on there with print it locally and, you know, reducing that footprint significantly. Say my favorite one there is you talk about the way people react. I can't get it, so I'm going to order more. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I was going to say. If you think about sort of how many things do we do we manufacture just just to have on hand in case we need them? And so you look at in some industries, you know, I have to have a 20-year supply on hand of replacement parts, right? When I've introduced this new vehicle or engine or or whatever. So now I gotta make all of those things and then they're gonna sit there and they may or may not be used. And so I think that, you know, what's the what's the carrying cost, the inventory cost, the warehousing cost, not to mention the the energy and and material that is now sitting there doing nothing. This whole notion of having digital inventories or digital warehouses where we could literally print them if, if and only when we need them in the quantities where we know, you know, the known quantities, then, I mean, the, just the, the proliferation of all the benefits there on, you know, economically, sustainability. I, I, cringe, I cringe when I think about all the inventory in all the firms that is never going to get used it's it's a it's going to sit and eventually get disposed of it's you know and i come out of the textile industry where there's whole you know exposés on clothing being burned to get rid of it right because they there's no use for it nobody wants it nobody needs it so i'm a supply chain professional and i'm listening to this podcast and i'm saying okay this is really cool what do i do next like where do i even start in thinking about additive as part of my supply chain strategy. You got to make a friend who, who does 3D printing, right? Start, start learning about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I think we're, we are at that point, right? Where, where there's this recognition, particularly of, of large companies, primes, if you will, in, in aerospace and stuff, that they've been investing time and energy to develop the understanding and knowledge necessary to make parts like this. But eventually those, those tools need to proliferate down into the supply chain more broadly. And so there's, there's a renewed interest. Actually, I don't know if you've, you've seen President Biden's AM Forward initiative. So actually looking at, there were what, seven or eight companies that came together that said, hey, we need to start building out the supply chain, right? We need, whether it's ca- help with capital investment, knowledge, workforce development, you know, sharing exchange of information. I mean, I mean, all the above there are, are critical. And so there are a lot more resources now, certainly online, as well as, as, you know, formal programs like what we offer, where you can start getting that knowledge or or an introduction to additive, 
you know what what's the basic technology you don't you don't need as a supply chain professional right you don't need to deep dive into the nitty-gritty of every process but at least at a high level sort of understand oh if if i want to make plastic parts or metal parts right these sort of processes are those because that helps you then from there you can understand well what are what are the economics associated with that right how many steps what are the, the sort of process steps I need, the, the software that I need, et cetera. And then once you have a good sense of what those costs are, now you can start going around and, and looking where, where are the use cases, right? Where can I apply this? And, and there is sort of a, I work with, uh, with the Barnes Global Advisors, right? So we have sort of, we've seen a maturity model, if you will, where, you know, if, if you're not doing 3D printing for prototyping now and stuff, you're you're not in the game. I mean, that that's table stakes, right? You you got to be there. You know, sort of the, the easy entry then, sort of that early adopted is now how do we use 3D printing and additive for, for tooling, molds, fixtures, right? Sort of just get it, get it on the manufacturing or factory floor there to help people become at ease or comfort with it. And then start looking where are opportunities for this part-to-part substitution where I can't get it, you know, my, my supply chain is, you know, unable to provide this part or whatever. Oh, okay, now let's, let's outsource. Let's get somebody else to do that, figure out, make sure it works before we invest locally and try and ramp up because there is a ramp up, right, with machines and equipment and, and capabilities. But if it looks good, then, yeah, let's start now doing finding sort of where are sort of AM enabled designs. So like what GE did with that leap nozzle. Oh, if I can print all of these components, you know, there's 20 parts in that nozzle that I can now print as a single thing. Well, it saves labor, it saves cost, and blah, blah, right? Easy win. And then eventually sort of the, the highest is really designing for and optimizing for additive. Okay, I truly can clean sheet. How do I really push the limits on on AM? And so from a supply chain perspective, where and how from a tooling fixturing, you know, sort of a productivity standpoint, and then from processor or uh, procurement standpoint, right? Where and how can you start working with additive service bureaus and, and others to provide parts to make sure trying to demystify additive and overcome the hesitation or trepidation that uh, a lot of people still have about it. So, uh, you know, you've been doing this a while. I'm going to ask you a fun question. Like, what's some of the coolest things you got a chance to design and print in your labs or with a client? I talked about one of the funnest was at home with my daughter way back when she was young. They had the, uh, the 3D doodler came out, the 3D printed pen. So literally, instead of a, a robot arm moving it, your hand was the robot arm. So uh, she and I 3D printed a little uh, pink tiara for her, uh, you know, baby doll at the time, what, 10 years ago or so. Here. In contrast to, I think for me, one of, one of the, the ahas or tipping points there, we were fortunate to uh, make connection with Robert Cohen and his team at uh, Pipeline Orthopedic. They had just gotten FDA approval on a titanium hip implant. And they had sort of model, model one, the 280 system. We had just gotten the, the Gen 2 system, right? So part of this was, hey, let's collaborate, see if this Gen 2 prints any better. But when they came up and he handed me that 3D printed titanium implant 
with the FDA marking on it that was like, this can go into a patient's hip. I was just like, that was it, right? That was my trigger point. This is game changing in terms of being able to see what it was, what it can do. A company was there, FDA approved it. It was like, hold on, you know, this is this is going places. So that was the start of my my hype cycle, right? As part of it. And and we've been fortunate. The other the other one I love, I didn't do it but our lab, the first flight critical item on uh, one of the Navy's helicopters, the V-22 Link. Not a very impressive part. It looks like a looks like almost like a wrench, like a box wrench. Just hold it holds the engines on a helicopter. And and I you know and I love and, and Ted Reutzel and Wes bless their heart, right? Probably the most 15, 18 months stressful of months of their lives getting that sort of done and handed off to to qualify and print and fly. But that's the part I hold up. When anybody says, you know, oh, those additives still strong enough. Boom, there it is. This holds the engine on a helicopter. This was 3D printed titanium. Any other questions, right? I mean, that, that's what you need. And then people are like, oh, I guess it is. All right, let's let's go, right? Yeah, those are some sweet examples. So I'm going to close on one final question. Think about, uh, you know, July 2022, the end of the decade. I'd like to say there'll be a new Prince song, but of course he's passed away. But, you know, there's a, there's a song playing because we're going to flip over into 2030. When you look forward, what do you think additive is going to look like, uh, you know, in the future? Is is the sky the limit? Is it going to be ubiquitous? You know, you go down to the corner grocery store and get something 3D printed or is that too pie in the sky? You know, what, what's it going to look like? What's it going to look like in the in the reasonably near future? I keep pushing some of my friends in food science, right? We need to be we need to be 3D printing food. And actually, we did. We did have a, uh, you know, the Foodinis out there, right? The pancake bot. I love that. Actually, I met the. I met the inventor of the pancake bot not too long ago. That was pretty awesome. We did have a 3D chocolate printer from Hershey for a while. So food will, food will get there. I think I, you know, within 10 years, given the, the pace, you know, I think I think metals is going to be fairly, fairly ubiquitous, right? It not not a, not a you know replace everything, but it, it'll complement, right? And just like, oh, do we cast apart, do we machine, do we forge, or do we, or do we add it? You know, do we do we 3D print? So I think. I think we are moving into truly additive production. That industrialization is is happening as part of that. So I think that will continue advance. I think where I'm most excited, obviously, bioprinting. You know, you look at now doing taking this technology to print tissue and kidneys and livers. We've got again Penn State Ibrahim Osbala, one of the the leading 3D bioprinters uh, in the world, specializes in you know kidneys, livers, and such. I mean, it's like. It's at that state where it's not an if anymore, it's a when, right? And now they're talking about literally in situ printing while you're on the table there sort of thing. And so just, just a matter of time on that. I don't, I don't know how the hell FDA ever is going to prove that, but, but nonetheless. I think the other, you know, the design tools are getting better, the capabilities. Fear designers, it's interesting, an engineer, the complexity of the shapes and geometries that you can make now are very tough for us to design with traditional CAD software tools. And so you're just starting to see AI and machine learning and all of this applied to generate designs for 3D printing. And so that's just starting to take off. And that changes. I, I've seen some stuff that makes me like, I'm not going to be needed anymore, right? My, you know, my design skills, all I'm, I move from, problem solver to problem 
framer, right? I say, okay, well, here, here's the loads, here's the constraints, here's the space. Oh, computer, go design it for me, right? I mean, that that's happening. So that's going to change. I think the other one related is, is sort of the material options that we're going to get with now with 3D printing. And so by that, obviously, you know, we're 3D printing concrete, we're 3D printing tissue and bio, 3D printing ceramics, 3D printing electronics, right? I think as we go forward, multiple materials, how do we deposit different metals together to change properties and apart? How do we combine metals and plastics? How do we print antennas and radios and all this stuff on a metal part that's in a plastic enclosure you know so this multi-material capabilities additive allows that that is how you're going to machine that cast that forge i have no idea but with additive i can literally put material at any point control the microstructure at any point in a three-dimensional space that i want to granted a lot of that is currently trial and error and tribal knowledge but it's getting embedded in software and computer code that now with AI and machine learning algorithms can spit out designs and all those sorts of things. So some ex really exciting opportunities on multiple fronts that are going forward. Well, Tim, uh, I knew when we signed you up to do this podcast that you would not disappoint and you never do, my friend. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. I think our audience is going to get a ton about additive manufacturing and what the possibilities are out of this podcast. And I want to thank you uh, for joining us today at the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. So thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.